My name is Cheryl. I've been at Jefferson for 12 years this month, so it's been a hot minute. If I haven't introduced myself to you, find me, because I'd love to meet everybody, and I probably won't remember your name, but <laughs> we're going to read from God's Word today, Psalm chapter 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many are rising against me? Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O oh Lord. Save me, O oh my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Thank you, Cheryl. You know, one of the uh, harsh realities of life is that if you live long enough, or if you're in one place long enough, eventually you're going to hurt somebody. Now, I'm not going to say you're going to hurt everyone, but chances are you will probably hurt someone. Now, I have known my wife, Elise, since we were in the fifth grade, and I have hurt her multiple times uh, over the years. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, the very first time that I hurt Elise was right across that hallway in the old foyer, or not foyer, Fellowship Hall, here at Jefferson Avenue. But this, uh, this story actually goes back further than that. It begins with my brother Doug, who's not here. Uh, my brother Doug is quite blind, and he needed multiple pairs of glasses over the years. Now, like, he's like quite blind, like Coke bottle glasses, you know, those thick ones. That, like, that was my brother Doug. And so he had these wire frames that he would get to, you know, look cool, I guess. And uh, he continued to break them because there's no way wire frames could support such massive lenses. So mom and dad, in their wisdom, said it's time to get some thick plastic frames to support those massive lenses. All right, so that's the Doug story. Now, uh, Elise comes into school or to church one Wednesday night with some brand new glasses with these beautiful plastic frames. And I, I didn't know that 12-year-old girls were really sensitive about their glasses. So I come up to her, and with my brother in mind, I say to her something to this effect. So did you get those frames because your vision's so bad that that's all you could get, or do you like them? <laughs> she left the room crying. I don't know. Uh, so anyway... It only took me about one year of knowing Elise to make her cry. Uh, but if only that was the, the, the worst I've hurt her in our now 18 years of marriage. Uh, that's just a little thing, right? Uh, eventually, she forgave me for the glasses mistake, and she has forgiven me for countless other times when I have been petty and selfish and lacked compassion. Now, the truth of the matter is that story lacked very little consequence, uh, although 
I guess we had a little boyfriend-girlfriend thing in middle school, but really she didn't like me until we were almost done with high school. So maybe it did have long-term consequences. I don't know. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes when we hurt somebody, the consequences last, right? The consequences extend. She was able to forgive me, but perhaps you guys have had situations where you've been forgiven, but the consequences extend beyond that moment. Sometimes when we hurt someone or cause pain, the forgiveness we receive does not fix the situation. So we can be forgiven and still have to deal with the mess that our actions caused. I'd like to read uh, to you guys today from Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows in his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, on the one hand, this is absolutely about the eternal consequences of heaven and hell. But on the other hand, this is also a general principle about how things work. Now, this isn't karma. It's common sense and consequence. The, the, the principle is this. You will experience the natural consequences of your actions. You will experience the natural consequences of your action. If you're the kind of person who likes to see how close you can get the needle to empty in your car, one of these days you're going to run out of gas. Well, how's the old saying go? If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. If you spend all your money on coffee and entertainment, eventually you're going to go broke. That's something my dad used to say to me when I was in high school. Brandon, if you spend all your money on coffee and entertainment, you're going to go broke. So you reap what you sow. Paul says if we sow in the flesh, we will reap corruption. So what Paul is saying is, is twofold. First, if you don't know Christ and his forgiveness then you're going to reap an eternal death without him in hell. But second, if you live your life, if you live the way you act is a reflection of a life without Christ, or if you do things that aren't in harmony with what it means to walk in Christ, then you should not be surprised when a little bit of that hell starts to show up on this side of eternity. You shouldn't be surprised when you experience the consequence of your sin. So last week, we looked at David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And the one big takeaway that I intended to communicate was that David never did anything to deserve God's blessing. And as I set the scene for just how much David didn't deserve God's blessing, I may have let my emotions distract us from a really important truth. And that's this. Just because David never did anything to deserve God's blessing doesn't mean that God didn't still give it. Just because he didn't deserve it doesn't mean that God didn't still give it. What I hope to communicate last week was that no matter how messed up David was, God's love for him and the grace that David received was never given because David earned it. It was given because our God is gracious and merciful, and he loved David. So hear me. 
If you're never qualified to receive God's blessing, or if we want to say it this way, if you're never qualified to receive salvation from God, then a disqualifying event, okay, now, what could I mean by a disqualifying event? I don't know, maybe like having a, a, a crazy affair and murdering that woman's husband, all right? So then a disqualifying event, all right, doesn't make us any more disqualified than we were before we experienced salvation, okay? If you were already disqualified, then a later sin does not make you any more disqualified, okay? The reality is these sins and mistakes only point us to the truth. We desperately need God. We desperately need his grace, and we need him for salvation because we could never earn it on our own. But you will also remember that we discussed that just because David was forgiven doesn't mean that he was not going to experience the wrath and justice of God in this life. So today we're going to look at the realities of the consequences of our sin. The realities of the consequences of our sin. Now I'm going to let David show you the physical consequences of our sin. I don't, I don't need to explain that. But the consequences of our sin kind of extend beyond the, the, the physical and what we see in deeper and, and impact our spiritual life. So today we're going to look at three realities of the consequences of our sin. Reality number one is that forgiveness does not remove earthly consequence. Just because you're forgiven does not mean your earthly consequence goes away. Reality number two, consequences reveal our need for God. We may never realize how much we need him until we find ourselves in the, in the results of our own poor decisions. And the third reality is we can still praise God as we experience the earthly consequences of our sin. We can still worship God even in the middle of those earthly consequences. So let's jump in and look at the first reality. Forgiveness does not mean earthly consequences are removed. A man reaps what he sows. If he sows from the flesh, he will reap corruption. The Lord promised through the prophet Nathan that the sword would never leave David's house. But I have this feeling that David really didn't understand just how close to home that might be. So I want to read a, a key passage from the judgment that Nathan proclaimed over David. This comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. So David just been confronted with his sin. It says, starting in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And we talked about this last week. David humbly accepted the reality of his sin. He confessed that sin to the Lord without excuse. Then Nathan tells David that the Lord has put away his sin. Even though David deserved to die, the Lord had forgiven David, and the Lord was not going to put him to death. 
But then uh, uh, the, the passage continues, and our English translation helps us out here, and it helps us recognize the fact that forgiveness does not take away the consequence. In verse 14, we have this word, nevertheless. Nevertheless. David is forgiven. Nevertheless, consequences are still coming. So let's step back, and let's see the whole thing again. So, David sinned. Then, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David. Nathan proclaims God's judgment over David. And David then confesses his sin without excuse, and he repents of his sin. Nathan then extends God's grace and forgiveness to David. But, then Nathan reiterates that the consequences are still coming. Let's look up at verse chapter 12, verse 10. It says this, Now therefore the, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Okay, so the consequences begin to unfold right here in chapter 12 as the Lord takes the son uh, that was conceived in this sin from David and Bathsheba. So that happens right there in chapter 12. But it continues in chapters 13 through 19, which in my opinion is probably the biggest soap opera in all of scripture. Uh, it is quite crazy. Now, again, like I did last week, rather than read this verse by verse, you guys can go read chapters 13 through 19 on your own this week. I'm just going to give a bird's eye view of what happened. Okay, so David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. And Tamar's full brother, Absalom, plots and murders Amnon. Now, after he murders his brother, Absalom then flees and lives in exile outside of Jerusalem for a while. So he's outside of Jerusalem, and then uh, David is persuaded to invite Absalom back to Jerusalem, but his exile uh, effectually continues even in Jerusalem as he's not restored to any of his places. There's no relationship with him and David. He just gets to move back into town without a bounty being on his head. All right, now this, this persists in Absalom. As he stews in his bitterness, his bitterness about himself being in exile, his bitterness about what happened to his sister and his dad's lack of action, this persists in Absalom until he leads a coup and overthrows David, and Absalom declares himself as king over Israel. Now this time, David is the one who flees for his life into exile. But when David leaves, he decides to leave 10 of his concubines. So we know he had at least eight wives and now at least 10 concubines. He leaves uh, these 10 concubines behind to take care of the house while he and the rest of his family escape. Now, when Absalom takes the throne, he does what a lot of kings in that day and age did. It doesn't make it right. It's clearly wrong. It's an abomination and it's immoral, but it was kind of what you did. Absalom took those ten concubines that were left, and he raped them in public on the roof of David's house just to declare his power over David and the kingdom. Now, Absalom's forces are, are later then entangled in battle with David's forces, and David, you know, is a master tactician and general, and David's forces are winning the battle, 
and Absalom is fleeing. And as Absalom is fleeing from this battle, he's got this beautiful, long, flowing locks that are flowing from his hair. And he's on his mule, and he goes under a tree, and he's caught in this tree by his hair. That's, that's a lot of hair. And the horse just keeps running, or the mule. And he's left dangling by his hair. And I just can't help but wonder for how long. I mean, clearly a while. So one of David's servants finds him hanging there and goes and reports to the general, uh, uh, Joab. And Joab goes back and kills Absalom. What a mess. The sword never departed. What a mess. Three sons are dead. The baby, Amnon, and Absalom. His daughter's raped. Ten concubines are raped. There's a civil war. He loses the kingdom for a season. I mean, David was forgiven, but he still had to face the consequences of his actions. Now, I thought long and hard about how tough I should be on David this week. He failed in so many ways over the course of his life. He was a bad husband. If David would have just had one wife and been faithful to her, this would have never happened. He was a bad dad. If he had disciplined Amnon and given justice to Tamar, none of this would have happened. If David would have gone to Absalom and brought the right amount of discipline to him, along with the right amount of grace for killing Amnon, then the end of the story could have been different. There are so many points in David's life where you could look at him from the outside and and you might be disgusted or at least disappointed. And I think last week you got a taste for just how disgusted I've been with David. But here's the thing. I don't think God was ever more disgusted with David than he is with any of us. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that if we've ever lusted after a woman or a person in our heart, then we've committed adultery with them already. Jesus tells us that if we harbor anger in our hearts, then we are murderers. James chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that if we break just one part of the law, then we are guilty of breaking The whole thing. This puts us right here in the company of David. Church, this means that we are all probably murderers and adulterers, and we are definitely all lawbreakers. And frankly, we all have to face the consequences of our actions. If we sow according to the flesh, we will also reap corruption we will experience the consequence of our sins. But here's the thing, church. That does not mean that God has abandoned us. That doesn't mean that even as we experience these earthly consequences, that we aren't forgiven. Or that we can't seek forgiveness from God. That doesn't mean that we can't walk in the good things that God has for us in the future. Now this brings us to our second reality of the consequences of our sin. 
and that is that consequences show our need for God and his grace. As I was thinking through this, um, I, I, was, I was brought to Isaiah chapter 1. And Isaiah chapter 1 uh, was written generations after King David. And it was written to the people of Judah. When the people of Judah found themselves in sin, this is after the kingdom's been divided and the enemies of, of God's people are on their doorstep. And uh, the Lord sent Isaiah to talk to the people. And, and I couldn't help but think as I read through Isaiah 1 that this could just as easily have been written to David. And this could just as easily have been written to us thousands of years later. Listen to how this is described. I want you to see how experiencing the consequences of our sin show our need for God's grace. Now, this is long. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 2 through 20. Follow along with me. And I want you to, I want you to process this like the Lord is talking to you, okay? Which is why I didn't cut anything out. I just want you to see the, 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 the trajectory here of this passage. It begins, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, what do we see here? God has identified their sin. Now, here comes the consequences. How does this go? So, they, just like Nathan, the sin is identified. Now, here comes the consequences. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the soul of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened, softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughters of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Now listen to that. Those are the consequences of sin. What that last part's saying is the rest of the land has been devoured. All that's left is Zion. All that's left is Jerusalem. Everything else is gone. The enemies have come in and they've wiped all these things out. Now, that's the consequences of sin. But see how it continues. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And what happened? These are two cities that are completely destroyed for their sin. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. That's pretty rough, right? What's he saying about those who are surviving? Like, hey, you might be alive, but you're not, you, your sin is real. Verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, 
Who has required of you this trampling of my courts? What he's saying there is all their religious activity is useless. It's meaningless because there is no repentance. There is no heart toward God. He doesn't need it. That's not what he's after. Verse 13, bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now what we have here is unrepentant sin. They just continue to go on with no changed hearts. They're just doing their religious duty without ever turning back to the Lord. So he says this in verse 16, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Now we shouldn't think of this as like grant yourself uh, uh, forgiveness before the Lord, but rather this is the acts of repentance. Stop, turn, clean. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. Now, here's the best part. This is where this all has been leading. This is where we're headed to, right here. Here comes our chance for repentance. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Man, do you not just hear, like, could this not have been written to David? Does this not sound like almost exactly like what Nathan said to David? And he's saying this to the people of Israel. And, and frankly, he could say this to us today. The Lord is describing a nation that generations after David's reign was experienced the same kind of rejection, the same kind of rejecting of the Lord. The Lord describes Judah's sin and, and their total rejection of God. The Lord describes how Judah lived through the consequences of their action. You saw that desolation and, and the, the scorching of the earth. But God did not leave them there. He didn't just stop at verse 15. Like, it's really bad to be y'all. That's not what happened. He continued. Look at verse 18 and 19. These are an invitation into his grace. They are an opportunity for forgiveness. And more than that, these are an opportunity and an invitation to walk in the good of God's land, to receive the blessing again. Was there anything in that passage that made you think the people of Israel earned any of that? No. But by repentance and seeing their need for God and trusting in Him, they are invited back into that. Church, we should not look at experiencing the consequences of our sin as God abandoning us. It is often in this low spot that we can see our desperate need for God. The consequences of our sin reveal our deep need for God's grace. Now, I want you to see how David prays as he wrote Psalm 3. That's the psalm that Cheryl read for us earlier. This, this is, the title of this is so important. It says, a psalm of David 
when he fled from Absalom, his son. As he's going into this temporary exile, as he's leaving Jerusalem, as his son is doing wicked things, as his son is pursuing him, the Lord moved in David's heart to write this psalm. O Lord, my foe, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Just put your finger there, right there after chapter or verse 2. Think about that. Why were they against him? This is the consequence of his action. Of course people are saying there's no salvation for him in God. This is God's judgment. That's what it looks like from the outside, right? But that's not what David's experiencing As he's going through this suffering, as he's experiencing this consequence, what's it doing? It's revealing his need for God, and he finds himself going back to the Lord, even as he experiences the consequences of his decision. Verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. What? Isn't God supposed to be silent? He cried out in his need, and God heard him. I lay down and slept. What? He slept? I would be a wreck. I wouldn't be able to sleep. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. That's what he prays in the middle of experiencing his consequence. David was a bad dad. David was a bad husband. And the sword never left David's house. This was all David's fault. And it's here that we can see that David is able to praise God and trust God even as he experiences the consequences of his sin. And that brings us to the third reality. The third reality is that we can still praise God even as we walk through the consequences of our sin. David wrote Psalm 3 while he was literally running from the situation that his own sin created. And in the middle of these consequences, David says to God, you are a shield about me. He said that the Lord answered him. He said that the Lord sustained him. He had faith that the Lord was with him and that the Lord was his salvation. And he is praising God quite literally in the middle of the storm. I want you to put yourself in David's situation here. It would have been so easy for David to have looked at his life and said, God has forsaken me. It would have been so easy for David to have said, this is it. This is the one. I've finally been cut off. I am disqualified from God's grace. Now, last week, I moved uh, uh, into the conclusion of the message by looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Last week, I wanted us to be sure that we understood that David never did anything that would make us think he earned God's blessing. It was always God's work that was on display. God's work 
David's work, I mean, uh, only made David more and more guilty. So we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and it says that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. But what I want to do today is expand that passage, and today is the day of long passages, so you're welcome. Uh, I, I want us to see that, that what we see here in Ephesians 2 is very similar to what David was talking about in Psalm 3. God didn't leave him. God sustained him in his lowest moments. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and think about how God is with us in our lowest moments. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Then then here comes one of the biggest flips in all of Scripture. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, church, Scripture only confirms that David was a genuine believer as he experienced the consequence of his sin. But here, Paul speaks to us about the way God loved us before we ever accepted Christ. Before we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, before that, we were dead in our transgression. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. What's it say? It says he raised us up. He raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the age to come he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Follow me. If this is true before we knew Christ, if this is true back when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, then why should we think it is any different when we find ourselves reeling in the consequences of our sin? He's still with us. We still need his grace just as much today. Now, as I'm so fond of quoting from Peter in John chapter 6, the context is different, but but Jesus confronts the disciples after he's had a tough teaching and, and the, some of the people are leaving him. He says to the disciples, are you going to leave me too? And I just think of that question as we're experiencing all, all the, the harshness of the consequences that our sin may produce. All that consequence may lead us to the point where we say, is it time to go? Do I, do I, do I leave him? Am I forsaken? But I want you to think of the words of Peter there in John 6. What does Peter say to Jesus? Where can I go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? 
What else can we do? You see, he is our hope in the middle of our hard times. He is a shield about us. He is our sustainer. He is still our Savior. He sustains us as he forgives us, and as he helps us, we can still worship and still love the Lord. We can worship the Lord even as we experience hard times. We can. We can experience God's grace and forgiveness and still have to deal with the consequences. And those consequences are a constant reminder of our need. And we then have the opportunity to worship God even while it's hard. We have an opportunity to worship God even while it's hard. As we start to move toward the the conclusion here, I want to read another psalm for you. This is a psalm that I believe was written after David's life. It's a psalm of, of ascent from Psalm 121. Psalm 121. Now, when you hear the words ascent, your mind probably thinks about ascending to heaven. Okay? Now, when Elise and I were in Israel, we, we had the opportunity to have a, a, an Old Testament professor, a guy named Charlie Dyer, who was an Old Testament professor at uh, Moody Bible College. He was our tour guide. And as we're driving around Israel, uh, he explained to us what a psalm of ascent is. Now, you'll, you'll never fully appreciate this until you're there, but it is, it is a, a hilly country, and there is a lot of desert and rough terrain. And the distance between Dan to the north and Jerusalem is a long way. And the distance between Beersheba and the south and Jerusalem is a long way. And people had to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. So this psalm of ascent is about God helping the people on their journey to worship. So here's what I want you to understand. For them to come and worship in Jerusalem, the journey itself was a sacrifice. It was hard work to worship. It was hard work to worship. Listen to this psalm with that in mind, making a long journey by foot through rough terrain to Jerusalem, which is in the hill country of Judah. So they have to ascend, that's the idea, go up to Jerusalem. Listen to this psalm. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Just think about that right there. They're walking toward the hills of Jerusalem. They're going over the earth and terrain. This is a difficult journey. And where does their help come from? The Lord. As we're experiencing the consequences of our action, they should remind us of our need as we set our eyes toward Zion, asking the Lord to help us in our time of need. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Do you see that? As you go through the journey, which could be days, we're talking about suns and moons. This is not an easy thing. As as you experience this, the Lord is with you. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth 
and forevermore. When we are in the low places of our lives, when we find ourselves dealing with the ghosts of our past, when we struggle through the attacks of the enemy that tells us we are not worthy to worship, we can pray this prayer of ascent that God would be our help in our attempts to praise him even as we go on our hard journey. You see, he loved us while we were dead in our sin. If he set his heart on us before we were saved, then why do we let ourselves think that he will stop loving us when we sin once we profess our faith in Jesus Christ? King David is the ultimate example of how conviction of sin and repentance and worship through our consequences is what God has called us to. Now, it's hard for us to use New Testament vocabulary of salvation when we're talking about a person who lived long before Christ like David did. But for simplicity's sake, let me put some New Testament vocabulary on David's situation. Okay, David was saved, if you will, before his sin with Bathsheba. Or like we talked about last week, he was saved before his sin with Michael. And he was still saved after He was still saved after. The evidence of the sincerity of his faith is in how he responded to conviction. The conviction of his sin revealed his need for God, and it led him to repentance. He then confessed that sin, and he turned, and God was faithful to forgive him. But the consequences did not go away. That forgiveness did not mean the consequences were gone. But because he was repentant, because he was confident in the forgiveness that God had extended to him, David was able to worship even as he lived through the tragic consequences of his sin. What I love about Psalm 121 is that we can call out to God when the journey towards worship is hard. If you find it hard to praise his name, then we can call out to him. We can ask the Holy Spirit to help us. So let me ask you this. Is there sin in your heart that you are being convicted of? Then it's time to confess that sin without excuse. It's time to repent and turn from that sin. It's time to ask him for forgiveness. And guess what? He is faithful to forgive us of our sin. And as you push through the consequences of your sin, you can know that God is with you. And just because it's hard, that does not mean you're on your own. Or maybe you're here today and you are feeling disqualified from God's love because of your sin. And maybe the consequences of your sin or a constant reminder of your failure. If that's the case, then I want to remind you of Ephesians 2. You were never qualified, yet he loved you and seated you with him in the heavenly places. You didn't deserve it then, and you don't deserve it now. But he loves you, and he died for you. And if David can believe that, then so can you. He is with you. He is a shield about you and the lifter of you.
your head. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the way that you love us. Your mercy and grace are amazing. David is such an example to us who follow you. We can never excuse our sin. It is wrong and it must be repented of. We must turn from it. We must endure the consequences that our actions bring. But we can rest in your grace and mercy that even as we endure the consequence, Lord, you'll still receive our worship. You say that though our, our, skin, our sin is like scarlet, you will wash us white as snow, that you will make us become like wool. And if we are willing and obedient, then we can eat the good of the land. We can still enjoy your blessing. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to trust in you. Walk with us on this journey as you say you will. Help us, Lord, to know we're not alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we take this time to respond uh, to, to the, the message today, uh, it's, it's my challenge to you. Just if there's anything in your heart that the Lord is convicting you of, lay it down. Ask him. Ask him to help you to believe the truth that he's declared over you, that you are forgiven. And even if it's hard, ask him to help you worship him the way, the way that I know your heart wants to worship him. If you're here today, and you don't know Jesus, you've never experienced this grace and mercy that comes from Jesus Christ, then we would love to talk with you more about what it is to place your faith in Jesus. You can come talk to me, or you can talk to a believer that's next to you. But however God is moving, use this time to respond.